Well, many thanks to all of you for being so generous in your giving attention to the word and being here. And thank you to Jerry Rankin for the invitation. It's been no sacrifice, believe me, to be here. I'm a Christian hedonist. I only do what makes me happy. (laughs) And this has been no exception. And so uh, thank you. It's been very rich and very moving. You have ministered to me in more ways than than you know, and I thank you for it. A special word of thanks to the worship team. I uh, go places, and uh, it isn't always the case that I'm able to worship in worship. That is, I like to view what I do when I speak as worship. I call it expository exaltation. So I'm just exulting over the word, and you can join me if you want, you know. But it really helps me to do that out of sung worship. So word worship follows sung worship. I don't ever divide my services up into worship and teaching or worship and preaching. Preaching is worship. And at least I try. I'm worshiping whether you are or not. And so we're going to go to the Word one more time together, and uh, we do it with hearts just brimming with gratitude this morning. And there's good news here in, in Hebrews this morning for us, so let's ask Him to open our eyes and thank Him for what He's shown us. So, Father, now, one more time, we want to go to Your Word and, and bathe in it and rest in it, and be shocked by it and be strengthened by it and be emboldened by it and be purified by it and be rejoiced by it. We want your name to be honored in it. We want this and a lot more that you have in mind for us this morning. So come and guide me and us as we fill up these minutes with your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Again, I want to, before I take up a particular text that we'll be looking at in chapter 11, namely verses 23 to 27 in a few minutes, I want to preface it with another basic foundational truth in the book of Hebrews that I I didn't get to in my introductory remarks yesterday. I left it out so we could handle the text in uh, 11:28 to 39. Let's look at verse 6, because there's something very, very, very foundational here. You, you know this verse by heart, probably, but let's look at it for a moment. If you want to please God, you can't please God, this verse says. Nobody can please God. Uh, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it tells you two things that faith embraces. For he who uh, believes or would come to God must believe, there's faith, that he is. And secondly, that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. So here's my paraphrase of that. You can't please God unless you come to him to get 
You can't please God unless you come to him as rewarder. You try to reverse those roles. I told the teenagers night before last. You try to reverse those roles. You blaspheme. If you try to come to give and not to get, you offend. God will not be the beneficiary in his relationship with human beings. He will always be the benefactor or be blasphemed. If you would please God, you must go to him to be pleased. The way you please God is by counting him your highest pleasure and going to him to get it and nowhere else. That's all I've been trying to say all this week. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. He will be dishonored if you come to him any other way than to be rewarded by him, with him. If I had time, I would unpack from this whole book that he is the reward. When it talks about him as the rewarder, ultimately it's he who is the reward. He's the essence of the new covenant. I will walk with them. I will be their God. They'll be my people. That's what I'm looking forward to. When that is finally fulfilled. So now, you need to take a verse like verse 6 and just mull on it for about 10 years. <laughs> Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night and you'll become like a tree. So take something like verse 6 that you can't please God Without faith, and faith is a coming to him as our reward to get him, to be satisfied in him. And if you come any other way, if you come with the presumption of you're going to meet his needs, or you're going to do a favor for him, you offend him. You put him in the place of a needy God. Now, I want to dwell on this for a moment with you before we go on, because this is absolutely foundational for biblical theology and the theology of Hebrews and the living of the Christian life on the mission field and at home. Namely, we are always beneficiaries, never benefactors of God. We must constantly keep that in mind. To live by faith is to be a getter, 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 and never a giver in such a way that you enrich God. Well, let me give you a couple of verses to support that besides this one. So you see the breadth of this in the Bible. Acts 17:25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. He will be the giver. You will never be the giver in this relationship with him. God is not served by human hands. So I told the teenagers as they went home, if their parents asked them, what did the pastor say tonight? Tell them he said not to serve God. That's what he said. And I gave them one more text to support that, namely Mark 10:45. The Son of Man came not to be served. So don't serve the Son of Man or you contradict the Incarnation. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God will be the servant in this relationship. See how the Bible jars us, kind of shocks us. If you're not shocking your people, you're not preaching the Bible. Of course, I know what you're thinking. All kinds of texts that say we should serve God. Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord and serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So what's the solution to that? How would you finish this little pre-message message? Would you try to smooth it over real quick so your people don't get nervous? I'm into making people nervous. <laughs> it's the only way you can change people and get their attention and, and maybe bring some new dimension to their weak, paltry, boring Christian lives is to shock them and keep them shocked for a while before you fix it. So maybe I won't give you an answer and we'll just... But I want to give you an answer because the answer is the key to life. It's just the key to life. And the answer is probably one of the top most important verses in my philosophy of ministry as a pastor. And it's 1 Peter 4.11. I'll just recite it for you. You can write it down. You can look it up. 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves. Okay, so I admit we serve. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever. That's the answer to the two pieces that didn't seem to fit at first. Do you serve or don't you serve? No, you don't. And yes, you do. Because there are two ways to serve. There's a blasphemous way to serve that puts him in the position of the beneficiary of your service as though he needed you. That's wrong. Don't ever teach anybody to serve that way. And then there's the service that Peter says is a serving in the strength that he supplies, which means you're the getter in this service. You get it? Serving God is always a getting from God. Serving God is always a getting from God. I'm basing that sentence. It sounds like John Piper. It isn't. It's Peter. First Peter 4:11 Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. Stop, think, think, think. Well, now wait a minute. That means that as I do my missionary work or preach or lay my life down for AIDS victims, I'm getting strength. I'm under the waterfall. Grace is falling down for every effort I make. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And today, 
moment by moment through future grace is pouring out enabling power on me so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. Or to use 1 Corinthians 15.10 again, His grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but Christ or grace working through me, with me, in me. We must learn this mystery of the Christian life that you dare not serve the Lord. You contemplate going to serve the Lord on the mission field because he needs you. Forget it. Wrong motive. Bad. You go to the mission field because there is where God says, I mean the waterfall to fall. You go to the mission field because in your case, God has said, I have blessings for you there, not here. I have blessings for you there, not here. It is more blessed to give than to receive where God calls you to give. And some of you he calls to give here, and some of you he calls to give there, and you go where the waterfall is pouring, or don't go. Because if you presume to go to give the buckets of water to him in Kazakhstan or wherever, you offend him. And the people will not be helped, by the way. They'll be turned into colossal legalists, just like you are. That's not why you want to go. You want to go and tell them when they say, why did you come here? You want to say, because I'm happier here by pouring God's blessing into your life here than anywhere else. I'm happier being a channel here of what's coming down on me than there. There's more blessing for me to serve you here than there is for me to serve you there. So I'm here to enjoy the blessing of God coming down on me for your sake. Would you like to have some of this? It's amazing. It's just amazing. Would you like to open your life to have God serve you for the rest of your life? Now, let's stay on this for a minute. I may stay on this the whole morning, as far as I know. <laughs> we may never get to Hebrews to 11, but, but you need to, you need to feel the missionary impact of this. Because the Bible describes our serving God as unique among all the gods that you're going to be competing with on the mission field. You know where he does that? Several places. In Isaiah, for example, I'll give you two. In Isaiah 64, 4, which is one of our great Bethlehem Baptist Church verses, we love it. Um, I didn't get the words just right. I want you to look at both of these uh, in Isaiah 64, 4, and then we'll look at another one in Isaiah, just so you see the missionary significance of this God. From, of, from the days of old, they have not heard or perceived by the ear nor has I seen a God besides you. Now, just stop and realize what he's saying there. Nobody has ever seen a God like this. No Hindu's ever seen a God like this. No Muslim's ever seen a God like this. No Babylonian idol worshiper has ever seen a God like this. What does he have in mind particularly when he's describing this God as unique among all the gods of the nations? And the answer is, who works for those who wait for him. Nobody's ever seen a God who works for those who wait for him. All the other religions have you working for God. No other religion besides Christianity and a fulfilled Judaism says God works for you. You don't work for him. 
You better rest in that or you die. If you think you're going to come and commend yourself to God with your works, you lose. He will not be impressed because you offend him. You put him in the place of a needy God. All religions have a needy God. Muslims don't sound like they have a needy God, but you analyze it to the core. The other one is Isaiah 46. And here it gets real explicit about the gods of the nations. Isaiah 46. Listen to these gods and how they relate to the true God. Bel, there's a Babylonian god. Bel has bowed down. Nebo, there's another one. Stoops over. Their images are consigned to beasts and the cattle the things that you carry are burdensome. So here's the picture. They're, these gods are on carts being pulled by cows. Impressive, huh? Whoa, big god. Let's be carried around on a cart. A load for a weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth. Get the reversal? I carry you. You don't carry me. You see the difference between Baal and Nebo being carried on carts and God who carries his people? Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am the same. And even to your graying hairs, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry. I will bear you. I will deliver you. Don't get the roles reversed. I'm God. I carry. You ride. That's the mission field. We have a God to commend to the world who works for those who wait for him like little helpless children. It is the sick who need a physician, not the well. Oh, what a gospel we have. What a God we have to commend to the nations. And it's all through Jesus Christ. No way would a God ever stoop to carry a sinner to everlasting glory and joy with him had Christ not come to be our righteousness and to shed his blood on our behalf. Oh, how many texts we could look at. Let me just mention a few more. You need, a, you need to get about six or eight of these into your head so that every day as Satan comes to tempt you to carry God, you say no. I will be carried, thank you, and you rest again in him. For example, Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Trust in him, and he will act. Or 2 Chronicles 16, 9. This is one of my favorites. Kids... Kids can get a handle on these. They kind of look at you funny when you say it. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward him. So what is God looking for in the world? A place to show off his muscles. 
That's exactly what it says. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole world, seeking to show himself mighty on behalf of those whose heart is whole towards him. So what's he looking for? He's looking for helpless people. He's looking for weak people. He's looking for broken people who are ready to trust him so that he can show off his muscles. He loves to show off his broad shoulders by carrying your burden. Why does it say? Why in First Peter is there a link between humility and casting your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, for he cares for you, casting all your cares upon him, your burdens upon him. Why is there a link between humbling and God carrying your cares. Answer, because if you try to carry your own cares, you're proud. And God gets no glory when you try to carry your own cares. He's got shoulders made for cares. That's how they're designed. That's who he is. He is designed to carry your cares. So don't be anxious. Psalm 55, roll your burdens onto the Lord and he'll sustain you. Why? Because he loves his glory. We're so self-centered, we think it's because he loves me. I'm so precious in his sight. Well, that's true. That's not the main point. Now we're back to the first night here where I got blank stares everywhere. God loves his glory, and that's the foundation of his love for you. And if you don't get the love for his own glory, you won't have the foundation under his love for you because you don't deserve his love. And so if there isn't something more foundational under his love for you, like his love for himself, you won't have any foundation ultimately. And he loves his glory in the sense that he shows off his power by carrying burdens for his people. That's the kind of God we have. That's the nature of grace. Grace is not highlighting your worth. Grace is highlighting his sufficiency to carry your burdens, even your sins. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's good at it. He's really good at it. He's so good at it. He sent his son to carry it all, buy it all, purchase everything for you. Here's another one. Psalm 50:15. This is Robinson Crusoe's text again. Call on me in the day of trouble. Remember what preceded this verse? If I were hungry, remember what he said? The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. If I were hungry, would I tell you? You get, you get the mindset here? They're bringing their cattle, slaughtering their cattle, and some of them have the mindset in sacrifices. He eats this stuff and needs it. That's not the point. Of the Old Testament sacrifices. He does not need these cattle. He does not need these lambs. He doesn't need these pigeons. He doesn't need that meat. He doesn't need that blood. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. You, this is verse 15. You call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. You see the structure of the Bible? This is the essence of the Bible. God works for you. You cry out for help. You trust in future grace. You get the help. He gets the glory. And that's the most precious news in the world. Here's another one. Psalm 23. Everybody in this room knows Psalm 23 by heart. But you know what? 
We've got some Old Testament scholars here, and I wish they'd kind of stand up and vouch for me on this. There's a bad translation in Psalm 23. It's in every version, and I don't know why. So, Peter Gentry back there, you tell me at 11 o'clock why this is, and uh, if I get it wrong, I'll apologize. But at the end of Psalm 23 comes this wonderful statement where in verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy will what? Follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'll follow you all the days of your life. What? This word follow. Surely goodness and mercy. Now, follow in English. Maybe it was different in Elizabethan English. I don't know. But follow in English creates a picture in my mind is there goes there goes uh, John. And he's out there doing what he's supposed to be doing or something. And here comes mercy <laughs> trying to catch up. Following him. That's not a helpful image to me. Come on. Come on, mercy. Get up here. I need you now. The Hebrew word is, I think, radaf, and it means everywhere else, pursue. Pursue. Not just trot along behind like Tonto or... That dates me, doesn't it? Pursue. So here's my understanding of that verse. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue you. God, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, pursuing people with goodness and mercy. He's after you. The, the, the red light is flashing on the police car behind you as he's tracking you down. And he's going to catch you because he has the big crown Victoria. And he's going to pull you over. And he's going to lay in front of you the new covenant signed with the blood of his son. Got any needs I can meet for you? Oh, I thought you were going to find me. I, that's my view of God. God finds me. My God finds me every day. I feel him. I, he's breathing down my shoulder every day. How many people, don't raise your hand. How many people, how many people have a view of God like that? He's always after me to spank me. That's not what the text says. I want to change your vision of who the biblical God is. He is pursuing his children, pursuing them with goodness and mercy all their days. Don't run away from it. Stop, rest, receive. He works for those who want for him. Tell me. Okay, not all of you learned that verse yet. That's Isaiah 64, 4. He works for those who wait for him. So if he's pursuing you, stop, receive. It won't be a ticket. Except to heaven. Uh, one more. And then we go to this text I, I thought I was going to preach on. My father is an evangelist and loves me much. And I love him. He's 81 now. And my mother is with Jesus. And uh, in 1971, I was leaving the States to go to Germany to study for three years and we were at Radio City Music Hall in New York waiting for the plane. 
because it was several hours before I left from JFK, and uh, we were just doing some stuff. My mother, my grandmother, and I think my sister was with us. I can't remember for sure. My father was in a evangelistic crusade in somewhere. I can't remember where, California or somewhere. That's the way it always was. My dad was almost never around. And by the way, I, I never grew up resenting that. If you're a missionary and you worry about your kids, if you and your wife and, or you and your husband are together in this and you love what you're doing and you both support each other and think it's the greatest thing in the world, I don't think your kids will grow up hurt by that. My dad was home maybe a fourth of the time while I was growing up. He'd come home on Monday, best of all days for me. He'd bring two new jokes and tell 20 triumphs of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And, and I would rejoice. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world to have an evangelist for a dad. And then he'd leave on Saturday for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks or wherever. And then he'd come back on a Monday and we'd all go to the airport. Greatest day in the week. Never entered my mind. I should be mad at him for this. There's one key reason. My mother wasn't. She was thrilled. Maybe she had her pain. And I'm sure she did when I became 14 especially. Because I was about six inches taller than she was. She was real teeny. And, and she, to smack me, could hardly reach my face. And I deserved to be smacked more than once. And she did smack me more than once. And I, I never resented her for that either. It took me about five minutes to get over my anger because I loved her so much. She was such a servant to me. Now I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, oh, I never resented Daddy being away. So he wasn't there that day. And uh, it was time to leave for three years. And uh, Mama had something planned, so we went into a phone booth. She went into a phone booth in Radio City Music Hall and called him. They had time set up and called him. Said, all right, we're about ready to get on the plane. Here's Johnny. And so I took the phone. Now, my dad's scared to death that I'm going to study theology in Germany, you see. And uh, my dad's a fundamentalist Baptist evangelist and uh to study at fuller was bad enough <laughs> to 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 study at in germany i'm gonna lose it. i'm just gonna lose it. and so uh so he's a very happy person today he has always i pray for you every day of your life and i want to give you a verse isaiah 41 10 fear not for i'm with you be not dismayed for i am your god I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with the right hand of my righteousness. Never forget that, son. He'll be there. He'll help you. Trust him. Goodbye. That verse, Isaiah 41.10, has become the word, W-H-I-R-R-R-R, the, the word in the gears of my brain. Since that day. In Germany, I recited it to myself a thousand times in tense moments when I didn't know the language. I didn't know the answer. I didn't know where we we're going to live. I didn't know how I was going to choose a doctoral dissertation topic. I didn't know anything. I was I felt like I had been accepted into this program without even being known because and I'd be kicked out in a minute if they really knew how dumb I was and how I didn't know German at all and didn't know Latin or French. And I mean, I just had so many anxieties as I went 
And over and over again, fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. And let every one of those words sink in. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you up. This is God working for us. They're all over the Bible. They're just all over the Bible. So if if you take away anything, take away this notion that God is our treasure. God is our servant. God is the one who will be glorious by working for us, not letting us work for him. Now, we have about eight. I don't know what we have. Thirteen minutes left. Let's uh, try anyway to go to Hebrews and see a few more things. I think we can do this without destroying this text too badly. Look with me at Hebrews 11. Let's just take verses 24 and 25. I was going to unpack 23 and 27 as well, but I think I won't do that. I'll stay with 24 and 25, then we'll jump to 12, 1 and 2, then we'll close with 13, 11 to 13. And the main reason I'm going to jump like this rather than going into deeper efforts with these verses is because I'm so eager for you to see that living by faith in future grace, which is still what I'm talking about, is the structure of the Bible or the book of Hebrews in particular, rather than my my little my little thing, you know, Piper's little thing, living by faith and future grace or Christian hedonism. I don't want you to go away thinking, well, that's a neat little thing. Now, another speaker who has a neat little thing. I really would like you to see that the, 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 the structure of thought inspired by God in this book is what I'm saying. So let's look at verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, remember what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Verse one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is a or faith is a coming to God. Verse six to get it's a coming to God as rewarder. You can hear the word reward here in just a minute. Very crucial connection between verse six and verse twenty five. Start over by faith. Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. than to enjoy the passing or fleeting pleasures of sin. So he chooses ill treatment. With the people of God, rather than the. Pleasures of Egypt where he could be a, a son of Pharaoh, as it were, because he regard, began to regard them as passing and fleeting, like they only last for 40 years or so. 26. Considering the reproach of the Christ, greater riches. Well, that's strange. So he counts ill treatment, verse 25, to be more to be desired than passing fleeting pleasures. And he counts reproach for the Messiah greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So in two ways, he describes this Christian hedonist before time. This hedonist who will have real riches and won't settle for 
mere gold and silver in Egypt. And he's going to have real pleasures rather than the fleeting pleasures. I think the fact that he sticks in fleeting shows that he means for this ill treatment he's going to get to be the means by which he will attain higher, greater, non-fleeting pleasures with and in God. And then here's the key. Remember that most important of all theological words for for I'm in the middle of verse 26 for he was looking to the reward. So if you say, how can a man facing ill treatment and facing reproach when he could have long pleasures, say 40, 50, 60 years in Egypt and much acclaim and he could have great riches in Egypt. How can a man walk away from that and go to the mission field? That's the application. Hope I don't have to make it as clear as day. Well, how can he walk away from that? Answer, he's looking to the reward. Verse 6, you can't please God if you don't come to him as a rewarder. It's the structure of the book. It's the structure of the chapter. The way you become a holy person. Now we're moving back and I'm on my, I'm coming in for a landing here. We're moving back to Friday night with three passions, a passion for the supremacy of God, a passion for joy and a passion for holiness. We see holiness here. This is holiness. This is what I mean by holiness. Leave riches, join the people to share ill treatment. Leave fleeting pleasures, join the reproach of Christ. This is what I mean by radical Christian living. That's what I want in my church. That's what I want for you. That's what I want on the mission field. That's what I want as you go home. You leave the riches. You leave the fleeting pleasures of the television or the computer or the whatever. And you embrace reproach and you embrace ill treatment. How can you do it? Because you're going to start getting your joy and your satisfaction by looking to the reward. Now, i got two more places to show it to you in seven minutes. Let's go to chapter 12. Just a few verses down, right? Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which is so easily entangling. This is a quest for holiness, right? We're going to leave sin. We're going to leave entanglements. We're going to embrace the hard road of love and radical obedience that may get the world's attention for God. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, listen carefully. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who modeled something for us. I've called it living by faith in future grace. You can call it whatever you want. Just get it. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. If you have ever felt the notion that what I'm describing as living by faith in future grace or Christian hedonism is low, kind of a low motive. 
I want a higher motive than the pursuit of joy in God. Watch out, because Jesus had no higher motive. You ask to be above Jesus, you're asking for something real offensive to God. For the joy that was set before him, knowing his father, having obeyed his father, having redeemed an untold number of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, assembling with those people before the throne of the father, taking his seat in the lap of the father, at the right hand of the father, and having all those people praise him and the father. This was a joy Jesus could see so clearly He could endure anything to bring it about. You are called in Hebrews to follow him in this. Look, fix your eyes on this. When it gets hard for you and sins cling to you and the fleeting pleasures of Egypt start to look not so fleeting and the riches of Egypt start to look very wealthy, look to Jesus and think how he pulled it off. How did he pull missionary service off for 33 years? Answer, he looked to the reward, just like Moses, just like the saints in chapter 10, verse 34, who when their houses were being plundered, rejoiced because they had a better and a lasting possession. Do you see the structure of the book? 1034, 1123 11, to 27, 12, 1 and 2. And now one more and we'll be done. Chapter 13. Verses, let's just read, oh, 13 and 14. Chapter 13 of Hebrews. If you ever doubted that this is a program, this is a theological, God-exalting, Christian life, missionary-oriented, Christ-bought, blood-bought program that he's trying to get into our heads and hearts I hope this closing verse will disabuse you of that thought. That it's not such a program. 13. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. There it is again, just like Moses, right? Just like Moses. Let us go to him. This is Jesus. Let us go to Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach. How? How can you how can you embrace reproach? This is so contrary to human nature to embrace ill treatment and and embrace reproach and go with Jesus to Calvary. He's outside the camp. He's outside Jerusalem. He's he's on the 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 garbage heap of the universe. And and Paul considered his life to be there off scouring the world stuff. You get with a Brillo pad after you're done cooking. It's all black and greasy. That's the way the Christian life. Is. In many ways. How can you do that? How can you embrace that as joy? Verse 14. Here's that most important theological word again. For here we have no lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Same argument. Same argument. Same reason, same foundation. So let me wrap it up. See if I can do this in a minute. 
just want to say again what an honor it is to speak these things to you. I do not feel myself as a servant here. (laughs) Not to God, anyway. I have enjoyed every minute of this. I love to talk about this. I love to give articulation to the best news in all the world. That we have a God who works for those who wait for him. Yes, missionaries, you are called to embrace reproach, embrace ill treatment, leave the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, leave the riches of Egypt, go outside the camp, and I'll just say, no, 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 not just missionaries. Every one of us, this text is addressed to every believer. The camp is wherever you're starting to feel too comfortable, too isolated, too secure, and you know love is beckoning you and calling you to do something bold, something risky, something strange in order to be loving and kind towards the nations or towards your neighbors who need Christ or towards some broken person in the hospital or some AIDS victim or some orphan calling you to get out of that comfortable camp and lead and and go out there and embrace reproach and embrace ill treatment and take some risks that you might get pricked with a needle or somebody might bite you with AIDS. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're called. But the call is a call to to first get yourself so satisfied in the reward and in the God who will be there for you. Not just the reward way down there. Yes, that's coming and that's the final answer, especially if you got to feel the pickaxe go through your chest. That's the final answer. But in the meantime, he's pursuing you with goodness and mercy, meeting all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why? And I'm going to end on this note because it's where I began. It's the passion of my life. I hope it's the passion of yours to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. He's doing that for you so that he gets the glory. So here's what I want to close with. The benediction at the end of Hebrews. So instead of looking at it, you look at me. I'm going to pronounce the benediction with the text. And you'll hear it all. It's all in the benedictions. One of the richest benedictions in all the New Testament. And the whole theology is in the benediction. I mean, the whole biblical theology is in this benediction. All right. And then you can find it and check it out in your Bible later. And now may the God of peace. Who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you. Who's the worker? Working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Oh, I hope you get it. I really hope you get it. So let me have the privilege of doing what this God delights to smell. 
You know what the incense is in God's nostrils? Prayer. And the reason prayer... Can't help but preach another little sermon here. (laughs) The reason prayer is such a sweet aroma to God is because we need and He's rich. He loves prayer. So let's do it. Lord, we are so thankful that You are the kind of God who beckons us to pray, express our need, be like little children, open our arms and our hearts wide to You because You have so much help to give, so much strength to give, so much deliverance to give, so much satisfaction to give. And so I ask one more time now that not only would understanding be given, that's real important, I think, but that experience would be given. No doubt there's some people in this room who are not born of God. It's all been by the hearing of the ear. They haven't seen with the heart's eye and tasted with the tongue of the soul the sweetness of having a God who works for them through Jesus Christ. And so I'm asking here, Lord, that those in particular would be quickened and awakened right now to spiritual reality. And made new creatures in Christ. And then for the hundreds and hundreds of others who know Christ, come, O God, and grant the experience of walking in the strength that you supply, that in everything you might get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever, and in whose name we pray. Amen.